Hey everyone, welcome in to another daily editorial here on the KE Report. Special daily editorial as we are featuring Rick Bensignor, president of Bensignor Investment Strategies, writes the institutional newsletter, Supposedly Irrelevant Factors. That's read by some of the most successful hedge funds in the world. And on the retail and individual investor side, you can check out the In The No Trader website, where Rick has three products, a monthly report called 7-Eleven, where he picks no more than seven of the 11 Spider ETFs with the goal to beat the S&P, a weekly report called the Tactical Trader Report, and a newer daily report called the Daily Tip Sheet. Rick, we usually feature you on the weekend show, but we're recording this on Monday. Wanted to get your insights on a wide range of markets as we usually do. Let's start off with U.S. equity markets and recently the break to all-time highs. As we're recording this, the S&P just touched 4,900. The Dow is up in the 3,800 region. want to ask you here, Rick, when it comes to these daily highs within the broad averages, how do you look at all-time highs when they are reached in these major indexes? So some of the work that I do uses some fairly sophisticated models to be able to project potential resistance points even when those levels have never traded before. So one such one that I actually um, have been leaning on for the last week or so and sold about a third of my um, retirement plan exposure to spiders, SPY, the, the level comes in at 488. And that is a target that was established off of the October 2023 low. We kind of did a moonshot straight up there with nary a pullback along the way. So I have reduced some long-held exposure. And the way I typically approach my retirement account is, of course, I want to stay net long, the stock indexes. But there are certain times and places where I think that it pays to lighten up because I believe that I can replace those sales at a lower level. And in the case here, even though the market, like even as we talk now, the S&P is up 12 points, uh, the spiders are at 488 and three quarters, that's still, that's fine. It's within the context of where this target is. One S&P, one spider point is 10 S&P points. It's, it's nothing. Uh, it's continually held here for about a week. And the thing is, we've got five of seven, magnificent seven, company reporting earnings this week and how those go along with what the fed tells us on wednesday along with a slew of other major s p companies reporting i think by friday's close of this week we're going to have a very good clue if we get another leg higher and at that point we may already be in the midst of it or is there something that disappoints enough to get people selling here and the buyers to back off whereby in the near term the sellers dominate and we finally start to see some type of correction that's more than you know the 2% correction we've had on any sell-off so far since October. So I'm defensive up here. Again, I, I stay net long, but um, I have sold some spiders with the hope of being able to replace them at a lower price. 
Well, Rick, I think one of the things that we definitely value about your analysis and a lot of our listeners do is that you're not a perma bull and you're not a perma bear. You're very pragmatic about it. You look at your technical levels, the quantitative analysis, you look at some of the investor sentiment and the psychology around trading, and you look at some of the fundamental factors to come up with an overall thesis. But when a market like the Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq come out and they break out to new all-time highs, you can have some targets up there. But at one point, it's either going to keep running and just blow people's minds, or maybe it's gotten ahead of itself. How do you ascertain when a move has really, you know, because the move we've seen since October has been pretty powerful. When do you ascertain that it's time to get out of the way and let the market roll over? Or when do you know it's time to hold on and the momentum is really there? Yeah. So one of the things to judge that, Chad, is where are the models that I look at suggesting, suggest we are within the scope of a trend, how much momentum is behind it, and are there any signs of exhaustion that may not show up in price, but show up in time? Most people who look at the markets, only after you've had a decent sell-off will they say, oh, maybe it's going lower, maybe I should get defensive. But they never think of or actually even have a mechanism by which to potentially sell something at or near the high of the move. And the models that I use consistently, more so than certainly any other group of models I know in my 40 plus years on the street, more consistently can pick where to buy lows or sell highs that actually turn out to be highs or lows. Most of the other indicators are all lagging indicators. So if, if you're using a MACD or a 50-day crossing a 200-day to the downside. By the time that happens, you're well off the highs. And same thing on the bottom. You're well off the lows by the time any of those signals show up. To me, if you're in this game to outperform, and that's the only way I think of being in the game, because if you're willing to just kind of take the average return, and just buy spider's cues and some bond fund in whatever proportions you want and wake up in 30 or 40 years and you're fine. You will have gotten the average return. And the average return is better than most people get. But if you have a process and a mechanism by which you can, with some consistency, actually do what any book would tell you, which is buy low and sell high, then you actually can outperform. And this isn't just talk. This is what I actually do. Well, how do I know it works? Well, at the beginning of the show, Corey referenced my monthly report I have for individual investors called the 7-Eleven report. It has outperformed the S&P simply by being in no more than seven of the 11 spider sector ETFs. Like XLK, XLP, you know, technology, energy, financials, consumer discretionary. There are 11 sectors to the market. And their proper uh, percentages, investing each one of those would get you the return of the S&P. The same thing as just buying the spider. Since I started that report, the end of this month will be 42 months ago. So it's a full three and a half years. So as of December 31st, 41 months, I have outperformed the S&P by 15.75 additional points above what the S&P has returned during the same time. That's about uh, just shy of 40 basis points a month of outperformance. 
consistently. This is not like all my returns came from three months out of the 41. The slope of the outperformance is virtually a 45 degree line. That means that it is just a consistent outperformance. And that is by using models that let me buy when most people are selling and sell when most people are buying. So I, I take the few minutes that I just did to say that because if you want just the return of the market, buy spiders and stick with it, and that's that. And you'll get the average return. If you want to do better than average, and I like to think of myself, I, the way I have progressed throughout my lifetime, both personally and in career, is to be above average. I'm not the type of guy who, who settles for average. And doing what I do gives me the chance to outperform and be above the average return. And I'm actually somebody who proves it with very methodical um, work and diligence to get my clients to be able to, again, buy low and sell high within the context of relative performance so that we're in the right sectors at the right times. We beat the S&P. Or better said, I beat the S&P. And, you know, I have those who are following me. Anyone who's interested in that, go see what I have on inthenotrader.com. Uh, you can sign up for a free seven-day trial to any one of the three written reports that I have. So I, I think when we look at why would I sell a third of my spiders in my retirement account, it's because I think right here and now is the place to do it. If you will, if you wanted to do it, you know, this is the time and place. And by the end of the week, I'll probably know if I'm right or wrong. And if I'm wrong, yeah, it could cost me 50 or 100 S&P points. It may. But I, I'm willing to, to potentially forego that and, and pay a higher price to get back in versus knowing that if this is the top that people don't realize is the top, but I have reasons to think it could be, then I'll, I'll give up one or 2% to have the chance to make five or six on the downside. That's, that's the way I approach markets. Rick, what about a simple timing perspective here? When we look at the S&P, Dow, and even NASDAQ, they are up 11 of the last 12 weeks if this week is a positive week. We can go back a couple of years, if not more, and see that that type of a run just hasn't happened. Now, I'm not even talking about degree of the move, just simple timing of the move. Does that factor in at all to, again, that taking some profits? Yeah, I mean, the, the, we, we've moved up to 20, roughly 20% off of that October low with hardly a pullback. I believe since the October low, we've had one down week. Looking, but yeah, I that's think exactly that's, it. We've had one down week, and that was at the very beginning right, of the year, December, trading week. Yep, December, again, right at the turn of the year. So, you know, this is kind of a rare run to the upside based upon the belief that the Fed was going to cut rates three, four, five, six times this year, right? It maxed out at six times. Now we're down to only a 50-50 chance we even get one for March, which we'll, we'll know by Wednesday. And I think there are enough things lined up to say that the market got ahead of itself and that so much of the potential return that we would get in 2024 was 
made in the last quarter of 2023 that I'd say you probably took half of the gain away for this year just because of the degree of the rally and the buying that was done in anticipation of what investors think is coming this year. It's not often they they get the Fed move right or you know how many cuts and stuff will be or how many hikes there were. The Fed themselves, I think, doesn't completely know what they're doing. They're, you know, they're constantly data dependent. They're this, they're that. Uh, I think the markets have surprised them. I don't think six cuts are coming this year. I never did. And I think that if you're going to pick a place in time, now that every single person in the press is talking about new all-time highs, because factually that's correct, you're probably closer to some type of top. From a sentiment point of view, last year twice, the bullish consensus on S&P futures uh, on a daily basis, one time it peaked at 89% bulls and the other high was at 91% bulls. So we're not there yet. We're still in the, I think, the mid-70s right now. So there is room to go higher. But looking at everything in total, I don't have a problem taking some profits up here. You'll never outperform if you don't sell when the market's high. In fact, I mean, it's intuitive. You you have to think that way if you want to have a chance of doing better than the average. And it really depends upon you as an individual, you know, any listener here, is average okay or do you want above average? And if it's average, then you just hold and hold and hold. And if the S&P sells off a thousand points, you're just going to get wherever that return is because it's the, you know, it's just whatever the index gives you. I like to think and have proven that I can do better than the index. So it's, it's, it's a whole different come from. Well, Rick, one other thing in the market that we should make note of in the general equities is that unlike the NASDAQ, the Dow and the S&P, the IWM, the Russell 2000, has not been able to eclipse the highs it made in November of 2021. Now, we did see one heck of a rally in the fourth quarter of last year coming off those October lows in the small caps, but they haven't done as well at the beginning of this year. And it seems like there is back to that narrative we saw last year where people piling into the big mega cap tech stocks and of all the 11 ETFs and the spiders, really the tech, the information technology ones, the one that's leading the pack again. Are we back to that environment where we're hiding in big tech, but maybe not taking as much of advantage of the small cap stocks? And do you think that would change over the course of this year where more people broaden their breath back out once again? I do think that the Russell 2000, although its recent peak was the same, same peak as we've seen before. So it has not broken out to the upside, but what uh, versus prior highs. So it's still in a trading range. But what it did do in one of the main models I look at is rally enough that it finally took itself out of the long-term bear market. And as such, I've said to clients, I think you need to consider putting Russell into your account for the first time in years. That doesn't mean you overweight Russell. That doesn't mean you necessarily think that it's, it's going to do better than spiders or cues. They're just worthy of having some exposure after years of not having a reason to own them. So I am a buyer on pullbacks. We bought a little last week. 
in in uh, you know I said to clients both last Monday and earlier today when uh, on Monday mornings if you're a daily tip sheet subscriber it comes with a Monday morning outlook and I I said it last Monday and reiterated that small caps deserve a space in your portfolio I'm not saying it should be as much as spiders I'm not saying it should be more than spiders. I'm saying it deserves to have a space. So if rates go down now, that's better for small caps. The rate story is, you know, we got to 4.2 in the 10 year. I do think that's likely the high of, if you want to think of it in, in uh, either wave two, you know, it's the, it's the peak. So if we, if we look at the 5% high as the high and the sell off to three point roughly 3.8% that we saw um, in December, the move to 4.2 is probably the high and, and we get another move back down. If we get a move back down, that's a better environment for small caps also. Rick, what about international markets too, where many other international markets are at all time highs? The Japanese market has just exploded higher. But then you look at China and we all have seen the issues China's had in their economy, also with their real estate sector. China, you can argue, is the Shanghai index is in a bear market. So how do you look at some of these international markets? I've been a huge fan of the Nikkei, so you know Japanese stocks, since I think it was February of last year. I first went long. It has been my number one non-U.S. developed index to have exposure to. I do think right now, a lot of people are jumping on the Japanese uh, trade, and it does have some upside exhaustion signals from a timing perspective. So I was out uh, earlier this week telling institutional clients that I actually think you may get a better move coming out of Europe right now. The, the, the ETF, which uh, ticker symbol FEZ, F-E-Z, is that of the Eurostoxx 50. It's the Dow Jones, think of it this way, it's the Dow Jones Industrial Average of Europe. You know, the, the biggest, instead of 30 stocks here, it's, it's the, the 50 in Europe. If they get another 1% or 2% higher, they'll break out of a long-term, I don't remember if it was uh, head and shoulders or inverted head and shoulders or, uh, or cup and handle, whatever it is, it's a big breakout with big upside potential. So near term, I'm actually more leaning towards European stocks than I am towards the Nikkei. I love the Nikkei even longer term, but in the short term, I think Europe may do better. And China, China is a disaster. If you look at the China A shares, there's an ETF ASHR. That's what I often use as kind of my benchmark for, for China. And it's right by all-time lows that the ET, since the ETF has been around, that doesn't mean it's the all-time lows for the index, but the all-time lows since the ETF has been around. And they are our one, two, three. This is the fourth time since this thing went public in 2013. So in the last 10 years, this is the fourth time down to the low 20s. It's trading right now, I don't know, around 22 and a half, something like that. It could be closer to a bottom, but you've got to you know, decide, do you want Chinese exposure against prior support? Or is this thing going to crack to new lows and you know, it's just a world of hurt? So you, you want to put a little bit in China just because it, it falls into the category of buy low. You could, 
but I wouldn't put much more than that until it starts to prove itself. And every little rally it's had, you know, it'll rally three, four, five percent and then fall straight back down. So we'll see. Last week, uh, the Chinese government tried to, uh, you know, change the reserve ratio for banks to prop up their markets. You got to move up last week, but you've already gapped lower this morning for Friday's close. China's tough market. Well, Rick, when we look internationally, it does make me also think of currencies. And with the, I guess, more optimism you have in Europe, uh, it makes me think of the euro. Obviously, there's the pound sterling over there. We also have the Swedish krona and the Swiss franc. So big part of Europe is a counterbalance to the U.S. dollar. How are you looking at the U.S. dollar setup this year? And is it more uh, a reference to how things go in Europe as far as growth? Or is it more about U.S. fiscal policy and monetary policy? I think it's more going to be dependent upon the rates here in the U.S. If rates get, so let's just say from roughly 4.10% right now, if rates fell 50 to 100 bips, I don't see how the dollar holds up at all. It's it's in a trading range, just kind of like rates have been this year. They're below, right now, rates and the dollar are below resistance and above support. And so right now, you're kind of spinning your wheels trading those. In the bigger picture, I think the dollar could get a substantial move lower. The dollar index could go well lower if you crack in rates because the dollar, which is trading at, I don't know, let's just say 103 and a half now, it could fall to 92-ish this year or, or it could take till next year. But that would be... That would be kind of the downside target if we take out the lows that we've seen so far and in around 100 in the dollar index, you know, 100, I don't know, call it 99 and a half to 101 has a bunch of lows. You take that out and you get any momentum to the downside, you're talking about the dollar index at 92. So luckily, I went to uh, Argentina in the fall. I'm going to France in May for my wife and I are celebrating some big birthdays. So we're we're going to Provence in May. Hopefully the dollar still, you know, is relatively strong. But if it cracks, you're you're not going to enjoy traveling as much as overseas traveling as much as you do right now. Rick, is there any chance that the dollar moves higher in your eyes? Because we have heard a number of people looking a bit more bearishly at the dollar But again, you look at policies around the world, a lot of central banks are going, it seems like easier or more dovish. That being said, we don't know timing on anything. Yeah. Well, look, the dollar's in a long-term trade. Well, I don't know. I I don't want to say long-term. Let's call it a uh, a cyclical trading range right now from, we'll say 107 to 108 on the top side and down somewhere around 100-ish on the bottom side. And right now it's at 103 and change. So you're not quite in the middle, but sure, the dollar could go higher just because it bottomed in late December at the same time rates bottomed. They both had the same signal at the same time, and you actually had an opposite signal in in stocks, which is why I had written that, you know, 2023 was very much a year that there was only one macro trade. It just depended upon which market you wanted to put it on. Yields and the dollar moved together and stocks moved opposite. We're seeing a little bit different to start this year because all three have moved up. And I don't think that's going to persist at all. If I had to guess which one or two were going to change, it would be that bond yields head lower 
And I'm not saying that they have to go substantially lower, but off of that 4.2 high, I think bond yields go lower, uh, which probably takes the dollar lower, but doesn't have to. And then that would be a better environment for stocks. The only case that I could make that below that we saw at 3.8% off of the 5% high is that you get a much bigger move to the upside than anyone on the street anticipated coming into this year. The biggest macro consensus trade on the street going into 2024 was that rates would go substantially lower. And in my first report of the year, I warned investors that the degree of consensus on the bond trade, one needs to be very careful about in just assuming that the street has this correct because the last time there was such consensus on a big macro trade was right after the 2016 presidential election when Donald Trump won, the dollar flew from election day through December 31st, 2016. The consensus on the street for 2017 is that the dollar would skyrocket. It peaked the first trading day of the year and went straight down. So far, we've seen rates pretty much go straight up in 2024, exact opposite to what street consensus was or is. So I'm always mindful of those type things, and there's so much consensus. So could, could we see the dollar move substantially higher? We could. I, I, I won't tell you it can't happen. It's not likely going to happen without rates moving well higher. And for rates to move well higher, everybody on the street has to have the idea wrong that the Fed is going to cut this year. Well, Rick, just in light of that, let's just go with the probability that rates do correct down some, as does the dollar. And especially if the dollar was to break 100, as you say, and head down into the low 90s, what would that mean for the commodity sector? What would that mean for gold, copper, things like that? It's all good stuff. You You lower the cost of the dollar. Any of the commodities priced in dollars, like gold, like many of you know ag products, are dollar denominated. It's going to be it's going to be a boost for them. So if you if you get a dollar index down near ninety two, you finally have the breakout move in gold that will sustain itself. We saw in futures that spike up in I think it was early December or November. I don't remember exactly when it was that made a new all time high. You didn't see that in in the in the uh, spot metal market. It only happened in futures, and you've got to get above that high, which was uh, I'm trying to remember what twenty one fifty or something like that. Um, you get above there, and you stay above there, and then you talk about gold that measures at least to twenty four hundred. Rick, any significance of gold right now continuing to hold above two thousand? This is the longest it's ever been above 2000 on a consistent basis if well the thing is it looks tired gold gold isn't cracking and that's good and i own gold i've gotten many people into gold for kind of the long-term picture the thing is when you get a a breakout high like gold seemed to have had but it lasted only a couple days and then you come right back down into the range and you don't even get above what had been the prior 
all-time high in gold, which was, I'm trying to remember, 2089 in front month futures, if I recall. So you're not there. And you've spent very, very little time above that, what had been all-time highs. So until you do that, now, now you're just kind of hoping that gold will move higher. Now, if the dollar pulls back like I think it would, then I think gold has a chance to break out and, and actually sustain itself above prior all-time highs at 2089. And the longer you would break out and stay above that level, the better gold looks like. It can finally end its multi-year sideways range, which goes all the way back to 2020, uh, which is when those highs had been made. Now it's, I just looked, 2152. So the, the longer it can do that, the better. And, and that would really call for much higher levels in gold. Because if you want to use rough numbers, that gold has a quadruple top at 20, uh, let's call it 2050 to 2100. And it has multiple lows near, I don't know, 1650 or 1675. You're talking about in round numbers, a $400 move. On what would be a breakout from 2050, you're talking, you know, the chance here to get 2450. So gold, gold breaking out higher that can hold above the breakout is very good for gold, but it ain't there yet. So it's you're just biding time holding gold, and that's fine. That's what I'm doing, but I'm I'm not adding. There's no reason to add gold at two thousand dollars. I'd rather pay $2,200 for gold than pay $2,000 for gold. Well, Rick, another sector we get a lot of questions about is the energy sector. So I do want to squeeze a question in here on oil and nat gas and the energy stocks. We have people looking at nat gas uh, in the low twos thinking maybe this is the year, but it is a very volatile trade. And uh, oil has been stuck in the range in the 70s for a while. Very dynamic market. How are you looking at the energy sector? So as a sector itself, I am... It is not one of the seven sectors I have in the 7-Eleven report. I pulled it out uh, late last fall and exactly for what it's doing now, which is in relative terms to the S&P, you've just broken uh, probably either December or January 1st, and I'm guessing December, you've just broken a head and shoulders top. The bottom in 2020 and 2021 was made on an inverse head and shoulders breakout. So basically, 2022, in early part of 2022, we shot up and started building the pattern that is starting to crack on the downside. I think 2024 could be a year that the energy sector spends time in the very little traded time of that massive move up that we saw to start 2022. So I'm not holding it now. As of right now, we're getting a little bit of a bounce off of the all-time low in relative terms that was made in 2020. It rallied, it pulled back in 2021. So if you draw an uptrend line, that's exactly where the low is now in 2024. So we could get a bounce from here and maybe it ends up being a false breakdown. But I, I don't know. Um, I'm just working on my new 7-Eleven report for February 1st. And um, I am not, as of now, I am not including energy in there because the risk reward isn't great. If there was not 
the Mideast tensions that we have now started October 7th, but now the fact that even, you know, the U.S. just had soldiers die in the last 24 hours. We will respond. We, you know, you've got Mideast tensions at the highest level it's been in years. Uh, if it was not for that, I think oil could easily be trading under $60 a barrel. And it is the, the chance that stuff happens in the Middle East, um, and of course, always elsewhere, but that makes it difficult for certain players to be short oil because they know they could wake up and oil could be $10 higher in a single day. We've seen it before. Um, it's happened a few times in the, in the history of oil. And that keeps people from selling it. If you didn't have what's going on in the Middle East happening, I do think oil would be lower. Natural gas has been a pretty much disaster trade to be in now super volatile a few weeks ago it shot up everybody thought ah, the bottom's in and then it gave it back i think the next week it sold right down again and that gas is i don't know under i think or right in the neighborhoods of two and a half dollars its all-time low is near one and a half dollars and uh, there's plenty of gas around so it's it's a tough tough thing if you own the etf ung you're almost for sure losing money. It's been a horrible, horrible investment over time. People should learn a lesson that UNG is not, you're not trading natural gas, front month natural gas futures when you own UNG. It is a terrible, terrible long-term investment. It is not meant to be that type of vehicle. If you want natural gas exposure, go into natural gas related stocks. But trading the commodity itself through the ETF is a bad thing. Trading the commodity itself, you've got to really have a, um, a steel stomach to be able to trade natural gas futures. Uh, it is a wild, probably the the wildest of all commodities to trade is natural gas. Yeah, you have to have a pretty big bankroll to trade natural gas futures as well, unless you're catching it almost perfectly. Rick, another energy sector that we've talked more about, but not so much with you, is uranium. I want to know, do you follow uranium at all? Have you noticed this massive move higher in uranium, now over $100 a pound on the spot market? Any thoughts on uranium? Um, let me take a look, because I, I don't watch the... Uh, the, like commodity futures, but I do watch uranium, the like the ETF, URA, and it is up against prior highs from a few years ago. Uh, this is also kind of a, a breakdown point. It's trading at just shy of 30 bucks. This somewhere around 30, give or take a dollar or so is its inflection point. So the way it's traded in the past um, and it's built its bottom since 2020, is that when it rallies, it pulls back to what had been prior resistance, finds a base, and then moves higher. So here we are at the top end of the, the, the trading range for the last two years. If it, if it pulls back, then it goes back to 20. Now, a stock that goes from 30 to 20 is, on a percentage basis is pretty darn nasty. If it breaks out to the upside, then you would think that after a potential double top here, that somewhere around 30-ish where it's trading now could be the bottom. And that it, 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 let me see where I would say the next level up. Wow, I don't even have, right now, I don't even have a target that, okay, if, no, 42 and a half would be 
the target up um, off of the mid-2022 low. So in percentage terms, again, that's that's over 50% or almost 50% higher. It's 30. It's right uh, where we're training 30 to go to 42 is is a substantial move higher. So I look at uranium, but it's it's not something I trade with any consistency. Well, Rick, one more market we definitely want to fit in that's been on a wild ride of its own has been the cryptocurrencies. When you look at Bitcoin, a lot of posturing in front of those 11 ETFs that just got approved. Then it was a buy the rumor, sell the news type of event. But now it's rebounding again. How are you looking at Bitcoin setup? So Bitcoin turned the corner positively last year to, again, give similar to what the Russell 2000 did. It told me the long-term bear market was over. So that makes me generally a buyer on pullbacks. And we certainly just got a significant pullback after these 11 ETFs got approved. We went from 48,000 to just under 40,000. It, it backed off to a place that was a support level. I don't know if that's the, um, if it has to stop there, but it, it pulled back to what had been the high of a trading channel. A deeper pullback to, I, I could see, would be at uh, just shy of 36,000. And, and, and if we got there, I'd say that that's probably uh, a place I would come out and actually tell people, for those who, who care about the crypto space, you know, to buy Bitcoin. The, the good news for the space is that the long-term bear market is over. And I'm not looking at, oh, a 20% move off of the high from, I'm sorry, off the low from 15,000, nothing like that. I'm talking about models that suggested about middle of November or so that this broke out to the upside, enough so to say that the bear market is over. So when that's the case, I look to be a buyer. I own some at uh, around 26,000, I think it was, you know, where the uptrend line had been um, last fall and the, the end of the summer, I bought some there. The small position, I told you, I'm never going to have a large position here unless it just accumulates to being one, but I'm never going to take my own dollars and make it a large position. Uh, I have friends who tell me you have to own it. Bitcoin is, especially Bitcoin, you know, it's it's um, the, the, the supply is limited. It's already been created. So any, you know, over time, Inflation makes Bitcoin worth more. I, I understand that conceptually. I still not convinced that cryptos will have the usage and things that people who are the who have drank the Kool-Aid think that it will. And and almost always the biggest fans of Bitcoin are those who already have substantial positions in them uh, in it and and you know hope that this long-term story plays out the way they want it to. That's not generally how I'm going to have investors go, you know, put on positions and, and um, is, is on hope that some concept works out. So maybe Michael Saylor is right. And, you know, it, it, this is going to be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more at some point in the future. Maybe so. Maybe not. There's only so much of my portfolio and my net worth that, would, that I would put in on a hope. That something like this actually gets the usage um, and the acceptance that the, the bulls are hoping. 
All right, Rick, we'll wrap it up here. What a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking extra time with us. Because it wasn't going on the radio, we had more time to dive into all these different markets and all these different sectors. So I hope everybody listening enjoyed this time and really appreciates Rick's take on the markets. He's not a permable anywhere. He simply is sharing what he shares with his subscribers on a number of his products so be sure to check out that in the no trader website which i will link to below and rick we will chat with you next month thank you again very much for your time today thanks guys